Welcome to episode 213 of Speaking of Mysteries. I'm Nancy Clare, and today Jacqueline Winspear is joining me to talk about The Consequences of Fear, the 16th installment of her Maisie Dobbs series. Thank you so much, Jacqueline, for joining the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. I asked uh, Jess Montgomery, the writer I interviewed last week, a version of the following question. So I hope you'll indulge me before we dive into talking about specifically your new book. So it might seem like an odd digression, at least at first, um, in spite of not being even a casual member of the Marvel comic universe, I'm seeing almost everything through the lens of WandaVision because WandaVision dealt with how a strong woman okay, she was a magical being, deals with grief. And I was just finishing the consequences of fear when WandaVision came on the air and I kept thinking about Maisie and how she rebuilt her world after tragedy because Maisie is also a superhero and some might say a magical being, being dealing with grief that war can bring. And it, I think it colors everything she does. Um, that's that's probably right. I mean, I've, I've met a lot of people who have gone through war and it does color everything. Um, and when I say everything, I, I don't mean everything all the time, but it's there. It's uh, and in fact, um, uh, there's a, a terrific book called War Child, and it's by a gentleman called Martin Parsons, who is the founder of the Institute for the Study of uh, War Children at the University of Reading in England. And um, one of the, the segments he looked at very carefully were, were evacuees from the Second World War, people that for one reason were evacuated out of the cities of Britain or evacuated from Germany or wherever moved. And he said that uh, his research has shown that, um, particularly with that group, but with all groups, that an experience of war uh, takes three generations to go through the family system. Now, if you look at uh, the period that uh, Maisie is, is, is in, you know, there was the Boer War, there was the Great War, and then moving into the Second World War. And therefore, you've got, um, you know, that's why you have, a, have generations of people that have that, um, that sense. It's, it's a collective grief, if you will, and it underpins so many decisions at all levels, you know. I mean, it's interesting in Britain, for example, whenever something happens, like, COVID, what's the first thing you read? We've got to get the blitz spirit, you know, so it harks back to another time. Um, so anyway, that yes, I, I think that uh, an experience of war brings its own grief. And I think especially, you know, Maisie as a character was a young person when she saw death of the most terrible kind. And that means you, you come of age when you see that. You only have to look and just to digress at little children who've gone through uh, the Syrian war. They look like little old men and ladies. You see it writ large on their faces. Tell me that doesn't stay with them for the rest of their lives. And the, and the arc of Maisie's story is, you know, she had to have lived through, as you said, as a young child, there was the Boer War. She was a nurse in the Great War, now known as World War One. She took her nursing skills to Spain uh, during the, uh, the Spanish Revolution. She 
And now she's in World War II uh, and, and the consequences of fear brings us to the fall of 1941, which is before the United States has entered the war. And I have to think that was among the darkest times of the war. Um, there were many dark times. There was the Blitz, there was the Dunkirk uh, evacuation, which you, you dealt with in a previous book. It, but once again, things were not looking good in 1941. And things yet Macy goes good. on. Uh, you know, I mean, Britain was, was the holdout. Britain was very much the holdout because of the other countries that had fallen. And, you know, it's a small country <laughs> with very dependent on international trade. Um, you know, in terms of food and so on. And uh, Adolf Hitler wanted to starve out Britain, which is why everybody was, everybody was growing food, you know, and things like that. And rationing was, I, I can remember once saying to my mother is when I was about 16 and all my friends were going on diets. It was just seemed to be a thing. Everybody was coming to school with two, two rivetas and a piece of cheese and an apple. And I, I was not that kind of person, but I thought, well, that looks interesting. And I said to my mother, Mom, when you were my age, what did you do for a diet? And she laughed. It wasn't actually a funny laugh either, but she laughed and she said, don't talk to me about diets, love, because when I was your age, it was all I could do to get enough to eat. But having said that, there are many people that say it was, it was the worst of times, but it was also the best of times. And I think particularly for young people, there was a, a sense of, you know, we've got to make the most of it. You know, dancing and, um, uh, you know, horrible things happening and seeing horrible things every day. But you have to bring the lightness. <clears throat> you have to bring the lightness into your life. My late mother-in-law was actually an American army nurse in London from 1942 onwards. And she didn't get home until 1946. And she always said, I had the best time. I had the best time. It was terrible, but you know, they were young people and young people tend to make the most of, of bad times. And also there was the sense of community and uh, that, that, uh, that these things bring. Well, you weave this into all of your stories. Um, Maisie uh, in this story remains in England. She doesn't take an airplane. No anywhere. I'll, wait a minute. I shouldn't say that. She does go to Scotland briefly, but she remains on the, uh, on the island. And yet, she, and as you just uh, mentioned, she retains a very positive attitude. And I've always marveled at that. Uh, she's been through so much grief in her life and yet she is positive. She's looking forward. She is not giving way to despair. And what you just said sort of opens a window into that. Mm. I think people are very aware that you cannot give in to despair when that is happening every single day. And in fact, cases of reported cases of mental illness in the Second World War went down. People that were, many people that were suffering from depression ceased to suffer from depression because there was a, there was a common cause. Now that's not to say everything was all great. I mean, it was, it was well, um, covered up that crime went, petty crime went up, you know, there was looting and things like that. Um, so that definitely went up and, and that sort of news was definitely sort of tamped down by the government because they didn't want everybody to know that that was happening. 
But still, you know, there was that that sense of you've you've got to get up and you've got to you've got to go to work the next day. You might have slept down on the hard ground of a, a tube station, but by golly, you've got to go to work the next day because work has to be done. Um, and it doesn't mean it's easy. Um, my my aunt remembers um, very vivid memory that actually I wove into the last Maisie Dobbs book, The American Agent, that her factory where she was working, and this is a 15-year-old girl, it was bombed. And she was sent home. The whole area was bombed. This is Southeast London. And as she was walking along over the rubble, trying to get home, not knowing if a home would be there and whether her big family would all still be alive. She saw this woman and, and people trying to pull this woman back. The, the bricks are boiling hot because a bomb has just gone off, you know. And she's scrabbling at the, the, um, the, the rubble and the masonry, the fallen masonry, and calling out, my girls, my girls, my girls, my girls are under there. And people are trying to stop her because her children are buried mm. and that state my aunt tells me that story almost every time I see her now and she's 92 coming up for 92 so it's very much with her the rest of the story is she was then walking along with this this horrible image in her mind and in the distance she saw my mother and her father coming along running towards where she was because they were trying to find her and she said she sort of ran into their arms and my mother had been working somewhere else. Um, she was 17 at the time, 16, 17. And uh, they were trying to find her. So th those, you know, as I say, those memories are, are there. It's, it, people saw terrible things, but then they, then they, they went, you know, they, they got on with it. And, and, and they, said they had to, they had to go to bed and get up the next morning and go to work. And you had no choice, but what was the, what was the opposite choice? The opposite choice is, I mean, you can't just all curl up in a ball. <laughs> uh, you, you have to do what, do the, do the next indicated thing. Well, that sort of collective uh, PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder, shell shock, warrior's heart uh, that London had, and, and to a great extent, most of England, but especially London, um, you know, Maisie has a psychology background. She understands the fear and anxiety that can tear away at reality. And in the consequences of fear, everybody thinks that the 12 year old Freddie Hackett, who was the messenger runner who witnesses a murder that opens the story is impacted. They think it's this PTSD that has triggered a, a a false memory, a fear that made him see things that the authorities said weren't there. So that was part of the, what was going on as well. People were having difficulty separating reality and uh, their fear. Is that well, the case? Well, I, I think, no, I think that's actually a broad brush stroke. Um, and, and just as an aside, um, while London was very, very badly hit, it also bears um, telling that, that it's not just London was very badly hit. I mean, we can look at Southampton, Coventry, Liverpool, Leeds, um, right up to Scotland, and uh, the number of places that were really badly bombed throughout the Britain. Um, London had its own issues because the Thames could be lit up quite easily by bombing. And then, you know, the, the, the enemy knew exactly where to go, so to speak. 
But regarding um, Freddie Hackett, um, the, actually they were very, in, in, during the Second World War, they were very aware that children, particularly in uh, the areas that were being bombed, were, um, could possibly be under incredible stress. And there was actually a mechanism for teachers to report through to um, psychiatric care if they thought it was becoming too much for them. Um, and, and that was something I discovered while sort of digging deeper into to this uh, into this phenomenon. And, and really, I, I guess that was just uh, that 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 is part of the story. But that you know, I, I think children are very impacted by war, and certainly that comes out in the research in all sorts of ways. And I cannot imagine that Freddie Hackett, in his job was not impacted. So that had to be explored, especially as what he has seen is so terrible. What he says he has seen is so extraordinary. And in the case of Freddie Hackett, there's not a lot of evidence to back it up. Um, so that is explored. And because of course, you know, the police, they had, they had enough on their plate then, and they just, they wanted to get on to the next thing. But of course, Maisie Dobbs, she believes the boy. Well, I sort of had, uh, your, your descriptions are so visceral and so immediate. I, I saw this uh, young boy running through London. He, he delivers messages because there's no texting and there's no, there's barely, you know, uh, not everybody has a phone, um, but he's running messages from McFarland, who is this, uh, uh, is he uh, MI5 or MI6 or SOE? Well, or? It's, it's, he's one of these people and he's actually, you know, his job, if not his character, is based on someone I knew who worked in, who was the linchpin in that sort of area between different secret service uh, divisions. So that, hence I've given him, I've given him the, the job of someone I, I, I knew, someone who has now passed away. Um, but the, the role of Freddie Hackett is actually based on something my dad did in, in the war. My father was a really fast runner. He always wanted my brother and I to be great sprinters. And I think he actually missed the point. We're actually both really good long distance runners, but we could not sprint 100 yards to save our lives. But uh, he used to test us over 100 yards to see how fast we could go. But he was a really fast sprinter when he was a boy. And his uh, PT teacher was always telling him and, and getting him prepared for, um, you know, sort of races and, and tournaments beyond the school. And then of course the war happened. But even before the war broke out in the months before, um, the ARP men, ARP as air raid precautions, they were going round the schools, literally plucking out the fastest runners, boys, they wanted boys, um, the fastest runners to be message runners. And my dad was chosen like that. So after school, he would report to, to wherever, a depot, to run messages between ARP de depots. And he was 12, he was, what was he? He was um, just coming up to, what were we talking about? 19, um, just coming up, he wasn't, even he wasn't even 13. He was 12 years old. Like Freddie. Yeah, yeah, he was like Freddie. And, and I didn't know that until I was about 40 something. And my, not even 40, and my dad was with a, a group of my friends they were visiting my parents were visiting California and my I was saying what a fast runner my dad was and one of my friends looked at him and said 
were you a runner in the war? I had never thought to ask my dad that question. And he said, well, actually, funny you should say that. I was. And out came this whole story. And I often think about that. And I think about his parents, how they thought. But of course, you know, when you were 12 in those days, you're 12, 14, you were leaving school. You were expected to be a little man. And, uh, you know, but, uh, and I kept thinking about my dad because he was a man that had been brought, brought up in a quiet house because his own father had suffered shell shock in 1916 at the Battle of the Somme. So I, I wondered that. And, and, and you see, that's the thing when you're getting into a character, there's a key question, which is how would I feel if? And or you ask, I wonder, I wonder what might happen. I wonder how I would have felt. I wonder how that boy would feel. And especially at a time when we have such a different attitude to childhood than people did then. And of course, people from different classes had different attitudes to childhood as well. So uh, as they're in Britain. So it's, it, was a, it was a big question. And that is one of the things you do as a writer. You ask questions all the time. There's the old story about how um, it, it, was, it was even a joke at the time because I think the youngest um, person to be buried in the, the, in the Somme Valley, and I've seen the great, was 12 years old, youngest boy, and he lied. And what would happen is you would go along to the, um, you know, the enlistment centre and the, um, the sergeant in charge would say, well, how old are you, son? And you'd say, well, I'm 15. He'd say, so it's, uh, you said 19, didn't you, boy? Yeah, okay, I've got that 19. Boom. Off you go. And well, there was a case of a mother who, who took herself off to the Western Front and got her son and said he's lied through his teeth and dragged him all the way home, much to his chagrin, you know. Well, you, we touched on this a little bit with McFarlane and all of your Maisie novels have touched on sort of the ambiguous nature of war and the enemy of my enemy is my friend relativism. Uh, and these are the devil's bargains uh, that the warriors, and incl sometimes including Maisie, are forced to make. I thought that was especially so in the consequences of fear. Um, is that the case or am I just... Uh, dealing with the immediacy of, of uh, the, your latest book? Uh, possibly a bit of both. Um, but no, Maisie is involved. Um, everybody was encouraged to do their bit. And she was absolutely the sort of person with her background that she would be tapped for some sort of job. And it might well have been a clandestine job. She has too much to, to offer that they're not going to ignore her. They're going to, to rope her in. And of course, you know, as I said, everyone was encouraged to, to do their national service. It wasn't just people sort of uh, men and women signing up or enlisting in the services. You know, women joined the women's voluntary service. They, all sorts of roles that people took on. Um, and as I said, even children, um, no one was without that pressure to do something. And, you know, Maisie is a prime candidate to walk in the shadowy areas of, um, of intelligence, of law and, and the law. And uh, that's one of the things that I've always been interested in. I, I like the shadows. I'm interested in the shadows. And the shadows where people exist, whether they are, quote, guilty or not guilty, because I think there's a fine line. There's often a fine line between the two. There's, it's all in the gray. 
it's, it's all, and, and that's one of the things that comes out in the book. It's, 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 you know, it's wet. And, and we're often so much, we think we're more comfortable in the black and the white, but in fact, we, we tend to operate in the gray and particularly in difficult times. I think we all know about that. <laughs> I read in your bio on your website that you were impacted by your grandfather's experiences in World War I. And you, you just mentioned that in, in the Battle of the Somme. And that also that you wanted to be a writer. So I have to ask, when you sat down to write The First Maisie Dobbs, Mm. 16 books ago did yeah. you envision a series no gosh gosh no 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 I had a book in my head I had a story in my head that came to me sort of out of the blue I never even saw myself as a writer of fiction to tell you the truth I I I, I was a writer of non-fiction um I, I had a day job I, I thought I had two day jobs but I had a you know I, it's other work I mean most writers you can't be a full-time writer you, know? <laughs> you wouldn't eat and you wouldn't have a roof over your head I'm extremely lucky to have that now but um but anyway I was writing non-fiction but I I had a real interest in 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 history and that period about which I write and then this idea came to me while I was stuck in traffic which I've written about before and and I often called it my moment of artistic grace I didn't think my moment of artistic grace was going to last any more than one book. Um, but what actually happened as I was writing Maisie Dobbs, most of which I wrote while recovering from a really bad horseback riding accident where I couldn't use my right arm at all because it was in a kind of a structure, a scaffolding. And <laughs> um, But I, whenever I wrote something that didn't fit, be it a character, aspect of character, um, and as a plot point or whatever, instead of just ditching it, I put it in a file marked fragments because we Winspears are pack rats anyway. We don't throw anything away. So anyway, got to the end of the book. I was very lucky. I found an agent. I was even more lucky, found the publisher and the book was, you know, I found I had an editor for the first time, you know, a real, not, not just a magazine editor not that there's anything just about being a magazine editor. I thought there's exactly. anything wrong with that no exactly no it's I think it's a tough job I think I think it's a really tough job because you've got so many different things that you're dealing with and um but that's what I was used to to to, to communicating with were magazine editors but then I've got this other editor who is saying to me now I'm going to find out if you've got what it takes to be a professional writer and I thought oh no, my goodness me I'm I'm toast but when the book went into production, she said, let's, she phoned me and said, let's talk about the next book in the series. And I thought, oh dear, I'm in trouble. And I tap danced and said, I'd call her the next day because, oh my gosh, there's someone at the door, which was a complete lie. And I didn't know what to do, but I got out my fragments, printed every one off, put them across the floor and started moving them around. And I realized I had the spark, the spark and a little bit of kindling for quite a few more books, which led me to think, yes, okay, so I could, I could probably write a series. I'm not sure, I, I think I've got the, a next book, I've got a, an idea, but what, how do I want this to look and feel? And I realized that I wanted not just an arc to the, each story, but I wanted an arc to the series and I wanted arcs to the characters. I wanted to see these characters grow and change and I wanted to know how they were impacted, not just by the event, by what's happening in their lives and by the case, 
but by the events of their day, because we're all impacted by the events of, their, of our day, whether we like it or not, it comes down to our personal experience. And so it gave me leave to really think about that and to, if you will, in my head, um, consider how I wanted a series to look. And I knew I wanted to follow people through time. And I, well, I guess as I, I've written in a recent newsletter, I, I, in a way I felt I was developing a saga, you know, a story of people, because that's what re really, really interests me. It's, it's, it's obviously character, it's people. And, well, uh, people have, I mean, you, the fans of your series have become very invested in the characters, especially in Maisie and, and Billy and Maisie's uh, stepmother, Priscilla. her father, her, now her daughter, uh, her boyfriend. The, they're, you know, whenever the book comes out about once a year, it's sort of, you get the opportunity to check up and check in with old friends. And, you know, that's, uh, it's interesting that you talked about how you, uh, I'm, I'm, I think all of uh, us Maisie Dobbs fans are very, very glad you kept that fragment <laughs> file. Yeah, yeah. And, and I still have one, you know, if, if there's something I'm thinking, oh, you know, that's not doesn't fit here. I'm just going to have to leave that for another time. I'm, I'm, I'm just, it's not ready. It's not that that bit's not cooked yet, you know, so it's. Charles Finch was kind enough to join the podcast not too long ago, and we talked about his character, um, his character Charles Lennox's prequel trilogy that he concluded last year. So have you ever thought in this arc that you've talked about doing a Maisie Dobbs prequel? Oh, yes, I've thought about it. I've even got stories in my head. I just haven't had time to write it. <laughs> I have a lot of things I don't have I, I would love to write but I don't have time to write you know um, writing a novel a year particularly when you do a good deal of research and particularly with the other things that come along with being a writer which is admin and all sorts of other things interviews a, like this and, and having a life you know it's it's uh, it's it's even if you, you you know I just haven't had that opportunity but I would love to do it because I, I know roughly where I'd like to go with it. But I'm pretty invested in where I am at the moment with her. Well, The Consequences of Fear concludes at the end of 1941. Maisie has investigated the case, discovered some truths and some lies. And the end of 1941 is a pretty consequential time in World War II from both sides of the Atlantic. Um, can you give a hint at what Maisie is going to be doing after the United States enters the war? Um, <laughs> uh, what is she going to be doing? That you okay. can tell us without spoilers for the consequences of fear. We don't want to yeah, do that. For the, exactly. Well, for the next book, um, <clears throat> let's just say that her case involves, I'll just give one little thing, the, the women of the air transport auxiliary and the air, women of the air transport auxiliary, um, <clears throat> which was a civilian organization. And they were flying, you know, pretty soon after the start of the war, ferrying pilots. Pretty much most of the women who worked for the ATA would f flew a greater number of planes for a greater number of hours than any male pilot 
<clears throat> excuse me, in the Second World War. Um, I mean, one very, I mean, she was very well known, but it wouldn't be unusual to be, to fly 76 different types of aircraft. There was a case of uh, one woman, a woman bringing in a Lancaster bomber. It was being delivered to an airfield because it had been in for maintenance. And she delivered this, uh, it was a four engine aircraft. She was, I think, barely five foot tall. Normally there are seven guys on that, uh, in that aircraft. She landed the aircraft and came down. You know, they brought up the steps and they thought she was just being on board to make the tea, the engineers who met her. And they said, well, where's the pilot? And she said, well, I am the pilot. And um, you can actually see her being interviewed when she was over 100, I think, uh, on YouTube. Um, by of all people, Ewan McGregor, who, is a, who does great videos on, 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 air, travel, on air, air transportation in the war. But, um, but anyway, it's, uh, it's extraordinary what they did, their accomplishments, and, uh, and in fact, inspired um, American women. American pilots came to Britain before America entered the war just to be able to fly aircraft. And, and they all wanted to get into the Spitfire. That's the truth, because it went <laughs> 400 miles an hour. Everybody wanted to get into the Spitfire. And uh, a woman came uh, called Jackie Cochran was uh, one of them. And she eventually was one of the main thrusts of, of uh, founding the WASPs in America, the um, women pilots. So that should be interesting because Maisie anyway, has so a well-documented uh, apprehension, yeah. and deservedly so, about yeah. aircraft. So uh, thank you. That gives us all Maisie Dobbs fans something to look forward to. Yeah. And Jacqueline Winsford, thank you so much for your time and talking to us about the consequences of fear. Uh, there's not a whole lot we can say about it specifically because it's no, there's not. <laughs> but I think you've opened some delightful windows into the process and into the story. Yeah. Well, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. It's, uh, um, I hope, I hope the readers really enjoy it. I hope they enjoy it. I hope they enjoy the, uh, what comes to pass in the book or they get something out of it. <laughs> thank you.